0: Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Welcome everyone to this evening's event in Barmy, Brisbane, well Barmy for those of us who are from Melbourne. (laughs) Um, Thanks to the State Library of Queensland for hosting us this evening, we greatly value our partnership with the State Library and the opportunity opportunity it provides us to bring events like this to you all. I, as Louise said, I'm the marketing manager at the Grattan Institute. Um, just a bit of my background, I host a weekly podcast episode for Grattan and in fact used to work for the Department of Education here in Queensland for five years, so it's, I kind of feel like I've come full circle tonight. It's, ro- it's lovely. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'll just give you a bit of a quick rundown of how tonight's going to go. Tonight, following my my introduction of the panel, we're gonna discuss, as Louise said, what the Commonwealth should or should not do to drive improvement in school education for around 40 minutes, and then we'll open up to the floor at the end for about half an hour for you, the audience, to ask the panel any questions you may have before we finish up at around 7.15. We will have roving mics available to you, so please wait till you have the mic before speaking as we are recording this event for our podcast. And if you're a Twitter fan, please feel free to have your say on Twitter using the hashtag stateofaffairs and the handles at Grattaninst and at SLQLD. And if you do want a quick snapshot, obviously big news this week is that the Gonski recommendations have been released on Monday. If you want a quick snapshot of the key themes of the report, head to our Twitter page. Um, We've just tweeted out a quick summary from the report that you can have a quick look through before we get going tonight. Uh, Joining me on stage tonight is my colleague, Grattan School Education Fellow, Julie Sonneman. Julie has significant experience in education policy and system design, and has co-authored several high-profile reports on effective teaching, professional learning, equity and funding, including Grattan's recent report and the one we'll be discussing tonight, The Commonwealth's Role to Improve Schools. Um, Next to me is Assistant Director-General, State Schools Performance for the Queensland Department of Education, Leanne Nixon. Leanne has been in her current role since 2014, where her priority has been to develop innovative strategies to improve student outcomes, and she's recognised for her educational leadership across the teaching profession and professional contributions to advancing learning for students, colleagues and the system. We're also joined tonight by Matthew Diebel, who is the Director of Evidence for Learning, a new Australian non-profit organisation that's forged a groundbreaking role in spreading evidence-based practice across the education sector, allowing great practice to become common practice. Matthew has more than 20 years' experience in building and running enterprises in education, environment and health. And our final panellist this evening is David DiCavallo, the Chief Executive Officer of the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, an important body in New South Wales for aiming to keep standards in school and teacher registrations high. David has seen both sides of this debate and is perhaps uniquely qualified to discuss tonight's topic, having led the reform of the Federation White Paper Task Force from January 2014 to June 2015, which he's kindly provided some background reading on for you all tonight. I'm sure you've got that in front of you. All right, with introductions out of the way, let's get down to business. The Commonwealth's Review to Achieve Educational Excellence in Australian Schools, or Gonski 2.0 as it's come to be coined, has been much talked about this year, and by a stroke of pure luck, or maybe genius on our part, we've managed to host this event (laughs) days after the release of the recommendations from this review and just before the Education Council meets on Friday. Couldn't have timed it better if we'd planned it. (laughs) 2018 is proving a pivotal year for school education, with the recommendations just released and new funding agreements between the Commonwealth and each state to be negotiated before the end of the year. Unsurprisingly, the Commonwealth is keen to see more bang for the extra bucks they're investing in school education, but states and territories are keen to retain control of their own educational strategies. Along with Grattan, many education commentators have cautioned the risk of too much Commonwealth intervention, especially over-regulation of how states and territories are spending their money. So just how involved should the Commonwealth be in improving education outcomes? But before we talk through the recommendations from the report released on Monday, I'm first going to ask Julie to fill us in with a little background information to inform our discussion tonight. Julie. Julie. Can you tell us briefly why Grattan Institute wrote the report on the Commonwealth's role to improve schools?
1: So um, we wrote the report mainly because we felt the political context was right. Um, Because we're in in a funding negotiations year, if the Commonwealth is going to expand its reach, now's the time when it will do so, and that's the main mechanism by which if the Commonwealth wants to um, exert greater control. It normally does it through tying conditions on school funding um, when given to the states. And we thought that it was important that there was a balanced and independent voice on this topic given Commonwealth State relations can be a little bit divided and one-sided at times. Um, and and really to pick up on some of the, the key learnings from the Federation White Paper Process, which David led, um, and some of the learnings coming out of that. And, and, and that being that you know, there can be um, a, a really constructive role for the Commonwealth in education, and so far they have done some very good things in laying the foundations, but that you know, overreach can cause problems in terms of duplication and red tape. Um, and so our main, our main message of our report was that um, the Commonwealth should, if it really wants to improve education, it should look to its own existing res- responsibilities first um, given it already has quite a lot of responsibility in training teachers and the curriculum and whatnot, um, and if it is really determined to act, then to really prioritize and only do a couple of a couple of things where there are clear benefits of scale um, efficiencies and coordination at doing it at a national level um, and And while the Gonski report is a lot broader, um, it does seem in, in part to to follow some of those ideas because it has only put forward a couple of specific things that the Commonwealth will do itself.
0: So obviously the report has has identified many big reforms to drive improvement in schools, um, some of which we will go through tonight, but putting the Gonski report aside for the moment, um, what are your views on what the big reforms should be?
1: Um, so if we're looking at, I mean most of the big reforms are in the, the hands of the states and territories first up. Um, And if you're talking about driving reform at scale, then obviously good good system design and structures are critical. Um, And this is the fundamental jobs of the state departments, and the state departments do a lot of work in this space to try and get um, teaching practice in schools to continuously improve. Um, I think a lot more could be done still on that front, um, particularly around pedagogy assessment and curriculum support for teachers. Um, I think if teachers are going to use evidence in their daily work, then they need structures and organisational structures that support that. Um, And while there's many reforms there to talk to, I think if I was to pick one or two, I think uh, it would be changing the daily work of teachers so that there's a lot more time and um, expertise to share for professional learning so that professional learning happens during the daily work of teachers. It's not an add-on and it's not something that's done outside the school. It's done very close to practice. Um, And I think as part of that, the second part of reform is actually having the best teachers role model that practice. When you look at high performing systems, they have a clear system for for professional learning where expert and master teachers, um, it's their day job to actually develop others and to have responsibility for a specific subject across schools and to look at how, for example, the teaching of maths is going or the teaching of science is going and researching that and looking at the disconnect between practice and research and then feeding that information back through to schools. So I think there's some career structure changes that that really need to happen too.
0: Thanks, Julie. While we're on reforms, uh, Leanne, I'd like to get your opinion on this. Regardless of whether they're Commonwealth or state-led, what are your views on the big reforms that are needed to lift education outcomes, not just in one classroom or one school, but at scale? So if I, I'd like to reframe that question sure.
2: uh, to begin with because I think the word reform causes a problem. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a deficit view of education and I think often the public narrative that goes on around education, particularly at a national level, is that there is a deficit. Uh, and I think that if we could reframe these conversations in terms of a strengths-based model where we looked at uh, what states are doing successfully and we could build on that, I think that would be a great step forward to us. So I think that that's part of it. Mm -hmm. It, For us in Queensland, the story of improvement uh, in education is not just a good story, it's actually a great story. Uh, And in the national um, conversation and in the discourse that goes on in the media and and, uh, constantly in this space, You you wouldn't even know that. You don't hear that. My father asked me, you tell me you're doing good things in education, but I never hear that. (laughs) And I said, you can't cut through that. So I think a recognition of where the strengths are would be a wonderful start. You know, in Queensland, um, in in terms of our Year 12 certification, 98.1% of all our students get Year 12 certification. 97.2% of our Indigenous students get Year 12 certification. That's a 5% increase since 2003, and in fact, the Indigenous um, result is up um, from 40%. It was at 40% in 2008, and we've uh, closed that gap to within 1%. You don't hear that in the discourse. So I think there is a place for a nuanced conversation about where is the reform happening? You know, Commonwealth um, intervention or support should be about scaling up the pieces that are working and recognising that there are jurisdictional pieces that are important and are working and that should be shared. So, you know, for us, uh, the Grattan talks about adaptive education system, one where uh, the system is learning from itself and it's about every principle understanding better how to make better decisions. That's the type of work that systems should be doing um, um, Investing in and that's the sort of uh, system and the type of work that uh, federal government should be incentivizing through um, th- through their work. Um, the second one um, for me would be about um, holding the course and don't churn the teaching space so uh, for for teachers it's about that constant sense of we're going to reform this or reform that. And there is a tiedness around that. Uh, Particularly, you know, the work that the Australian government has done in terms of Australian curriculum I I think is great. But don't change directions around that. Yes, it can be nuanced. Yes, there can be uh, um, refinement of that. But there's an importance in terms of holding the course around that work. The energy that goes into the, um, the white anting of our curriculum and the discourse around what's not right with it instead of the strengths of it um, I think is destructive and I think that if we're going to actually look at uh, how we scale improvement up across Australia then it needs to be about looking at the strengths in our system, looking at the strengths of the work we do, recognising those and building on those.
0: Thanks Leanne. Um, Matt, what does the evidence suggest is needed?
3: Well, the place, I think, to start with is this concept of scale. Um, it's really easy for everybody to start thinking about, well, what does this look like at scale in large ways? But the reality and the evidence supports this is, to kind of coin or to adopt um, the Bill Clinton phrase about the economy stupid, it's the learning stupid. <laughs> and that actually happens in the most small incremental ways, every learner in every classroom every day improving. So any question of scale actually has to start by saying, are you helping in those everyday decisions that professional teachers, school leaders, paraprofessionals are making to help improve the learning and development for the young people in their care? And it's really important to start at that place because you then ask, what are the things that are needed to help that continuous improvement occur? Working on the strengths that exist inside the profession themselves, or the school and the community that it works in. And also, schools are not homogenous. They are social institutions that are of their context. So, scale isn't, let's do this, it worked here, let's do it everywhere. It has to be more nuanced than that. But if you begin with the question about helping the learner to improve, then you can, then you can make some really good progress. And so what does that mean if you're going to help each teacher make a difference for each kid? That firstly is about starting with the profession and the strengths of the profession and enabling and supporting and strengthening the profession. So the discussions about improving the attraction uh, and the reputation for the profession and the society's view of the importance of teaching is really important. Um, the high professional standards to be created through initial teacher education and then the ongoing support through professional learning are all really important. And critically, as we start to think about, well, we know the importance of teaching as a profession, but one of the hallmarks of professions that do continuously improve is a deep engagement with data and evidence, so that they see it as part of their professional role and responsibility to understand their own data and then to engage with wider data and evidence systems that can help them get better to meet the needs of the, the learners in front of them. And one way of thinking about that is to, uh, we of talk about a phrase of faithful adoption of programs that have been shown to be promising in other places, but intelligent adaption to local context and need. So the other thing that needs to happen for scale for that profession to continue to evolve and make a great difference for their learners is that there needs to be a better system that sits around moving the knowledge that does exist more effectively uh, in more relevant ways um, closer to the profession so that it can be used easily. So that's the responsibility of researchers and Um, groups like us that are trying to translate or mobilise the knowledge that does exist and put high-quality rigour around that but make it usable so that busy educators um, aren't forced and left to do the hard work of saying, well, what on earth does that mean for what I should be doing in my maths class on a Wednesday morning? And there's a lot of obligation on the rest of us, including the Commonwealth and systems, to try and make that better. The final point that I think is really important that will come to the sort of Commonwealth-State relations is We're very keen that we think about this not as a hierarchy from schools to systems, federal and state, but to think about it as an ecology and an ecosystem Um, because schools operate in environments in their community. Um, The relationships between the federal um, tier and the state and territory tier, if we don't see it as a hierarchy but rather large players in the ecosystem with varying degrees of influence and strengths, That also allows the wider ecosystem of players who are intimately interested in better educational outcomes and themselves have strengths and assets to bring, but are often locked out when it becomes just a conversation about the relationship in the hierarchy. And we need that exposure and cross-fertilisation of other industries, the corporate sector, employers, the non-profits, the families and community groups to be a deep part of that conversation and to be recognised in the ecosystem. And if we have that model, then we can start talking about what are the rights and responsibilities of all of the participants in the system. And we think that's a very important way of looking at this as well.
0: Mm, interesting. And uh, what about you, David? Prior to Monday's release, what would you have said was needed in, in schools?
4: So I'm uh, gonna sound like I'm just uh, repeating uh, you know, key messages, but it's the same <laughs> that's message. Okay. It's good to, it's good to um, repeat key messages, no, so, reinforce so them. If you ask parents, <laughs> What makes a difference for your kids' learning? They'll say the teacher. They all know that. We all know that the, the, the person who is, or the, the, the people in front of their kids are the ones that do the, uh, you know, the teaching, engage the kids in the learning. That's the most uh, uh, important part of the system, if you like. So going to, to Matt's point about if you want to, you know... Um, uh, make change at scale. It's like uh, you know the Australian Super Ad or the Paul Kelly song, you know from Little Things Big Things Grow, <laughs> um, and uh, it's the it's the support for the profession. And I'm really you know like to acknowledge you know the presence of uh, of John Ryan, and I'm sure he's got colleagues here from the Queensland College of Teachers in the room. You're, you, Queensland is blessed in having such a fine um, agency uh, to promote uh, the profession and support the profession. Uh, because that is, uh, that is crucial to, to, to generating change at scale. Um, uh, John and I were both president a, a, at a conference in Wellington recently, the International Federation of Teacher Regulatory and Registration Authorities, and uh, a key message uh, there was uh, around exactly how do we better support uh, teachers to use the data effectively and I'm sure we'll come to this when we come to um, discuss the Gonski recommendations, but it's all very well to say we need to develop this online assessment tool, um, but you just can't sort of build it and they will come. You need to have a system that uh, supports teachers to be able to use such a tool effectively. Um, The other thing that we've got in Australia, which I think we really need to capitalise on more, um, is uh, the National Certification of Highly Accomplished and Lead Teachers. That whole uh, uh, organisational infrastructure to um, uh, reward good teachers, but not just good teachers who are good at being in front of kids. Highly accomplished and lead teachers are teachers who are recognised for having a multiplier effect across their school and across their system. So again, it's you know, from little things, big things grow. You have a good teacher in the classroom and then you empower them to influence their colleagues, and not just in their own school, but more broadly. So system leaders can make a big difference here by supporting principals to build into their school improvement plans. How do I get uh, um, more highly accomplished and lead teachers? Um, and we've got to focus on what good practice is already ready happening, not, um, you know, uh, Making teachers feel that the big burden is you know getting their portfolio together to prove you know that they they're doing something. Um, they're already doing, it. it's a case of recording it, rewarding it, acknowledging it, spreading it. Mm. So that's my
0: Thanks. take. Thank you. I definitely feel like I've got a real theme of acknowledging what's already working yeah. <laughs> from everybody tonight. Um, Moving on, I'd I'd like to spend a little time now considering what the benefits, challenges and risks of Commonwealth intervention might be. David, I'll throw to you again here, thinking back to the Federation white paper process, what did you learn about the benefits, challenges and risks of intervention and what might work best to mitigate the risks?
4: Mm. So I'm going to acknowledge someone else in the audience tonight and that's Julian Jeffress who's uh, sitting up there somewhere waving at me. Julian was... (laughs) Uh, one of my colleagues in the Reform of the Federation White Paper Task Force in the um, in the uh, in the Commonwealth in the Prime Minister's Department, uh, we, we, the room that we worked in was known as the Emporium. Uh, I don't know if anyone would guess why we called ourselves the Emporium, but Henry Parks was a failed small businessman several times over, uh, and his last and least successful venture was a thing called at the Emporium. Uh, And it's somewhat sort of fateful that um, we called ourselves the Emporium because, as you know, unfortunately, the White Paper, uh, Reform of the Federation White Paper, um, uh, ran aground. Um, I say it was shortly after I left, but there are other reasons for that. (laughs) Um, uh, Because I do think um, that was a real opportunity that was missed, I think, um, for various reasons. It's very rare that you would get, for example, Prime Minister, and then two highly regarded state premiers, one on either side of the political divide in, in, in Mike Baird in New South Wales and um, uh, recently, it's kind of, you, know, it's, you know, South Australia. Once you're gone, you're gone, aren't you? Oh. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Don't yeah, uh, so but those guys were, were really working hard to, um, to make things happen. One of the things that um, had bedevilled efforts to uh, reform the federation in the past was whenever proposals were put forward, states in particular would go, but who's paying for it? And you, you immediately went to the money question. One of the successes we had in the, in the process, and it was due to, I think, good political leaders at the state level, but also good senior leaders at the bureaucratic level, was that there was an agreement to put aside the money question for the time being and focus on the merits of the policy cases um, that we were looking at. Um, and the big policy cases, we called them in a, you know, uh, the, the big rocks, uh, were health, education and housing. These were the big Commonwealth state um, uh, funding agreements um, that uh, everybody agreed needed to be reworked. And we did work hard, and we put out six discussion papers with every word agreed by every jurisdiction, which is remarkable. <laughs> so we, we had this really you know, strong sense of, of goodwill. Uh, but then, unfortunately, um, uh, the, the draft green paper was leaked. I have my suspicions. <laughs> it's not north of the border, anyway. Um, <laughs> From New South Wales. Um, <laughs> uh, and that sort of undid a lot of the goodwill, unfortunately. But um, sort of the key risks around Federation reform and around education reform uh, and any of these big Commonwealth relations, state relations issues, um, has to do with exactly this problem that's been pointed out, I think, by Julie that the historical um, setup of the tax system, uh, where Uh, The vast bulk of uh, of tax revenue in the country uh, as a result of changes that were made during the Second World War uh, where income tax was transferred to the Commonwealth means that you've got the Commonwealth holding all the money or most of the money Um, and uh, an enormous part of uh, state governments now dependent on, on, on Commonwealth grants. Uh, And this was recognised in the reform of the Federation process, and in fact, even it was recognised even um, earlier than that in 2007 when uh, the Labor government was uh, recognised. And they tried to do something about this by uh, instituting a new intergovernmental agreement on federal financial relations, um, which was supposed to reduce the number of uh, agreements. Uh, that the Commonwealth uh, used to sort of coax, bribe, force the states to uh, to bend the states to their will, um, and as a result you, you you culled a large number of these uh, these in, uh, intergovernmental agreements, um, but they just grew again. Um, there is a sort of pathological um, uh, unwillingness at the Commonwealth level to let the states get on with it. Mm. Um, when I, I this is the second time I've sort of presented on on, on this panel. The first time was in was in Canberra, mm. and I felt I was on fairly safe ground by accusing them all of all being national centralists. And, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, when I told my colleagues that, you know, I had this job running the Federation Reform White Paper Task Force. A lot of them just said, well, that's easy to fix, just get rid of the states. And they said it half-jokingly, but it was actually, it was a widespread and probably is still a widespread sort of um, cultural bias in the Commonwealth Public Service um, that we have to make the states do what we want them to do with our money. Um, that was how that 's how, how uh, the kind of language that was used. Mm. Um, so I think the key challenge for the Commonwealth and the states going forward into the next sort of bilateral agreement phase, the uh, negotiation phase uh, around um, uh, reforms to education will be how the Commonwealth um, exercises its uh, capacity its fiscal capacity in, in ways that are benign and positive uh, and that support the states uh, and don't try to uh, corral them into a straitjacket of one-size-fits-all across the country. That's the big risk. Um, I haven't seen um, anything to date that would give me too much concern uh, that they're going to do that, but as I say, there is an underlying sort of cultural... Uh, prejudice, and when you have prime ministers and Commonwealth ministers who feel that the need to sort of get out and sort of claim the space, um, it's it's understandable that uh, that te- that temptation is there. Mm. But um, I guess you there's a bit. I hate to say it's a bigger picture. Look, education is important, but the the success of federal forms of government across the world is really important. <laughs> Uh, and precious, and um, we need to uh, protect and uh, and maintain uh, a federalist um, a culture, uh, and the principle of subsidiarity, which is one of the principles you'll see in the handout that I've given you, is is crucial to that, um, and uh, I hope that the Commonwealth uh, has that a uh, front of mind when it starts sitting down uh, to discuss with the states.
0: Mm. Um, Leanne, I'll turn to you. Given your experience at a state government level and in schools, what are your thoughts on this? So, um, as
2: has been said by other members of the panel, you know what makes the difference for students' success and student outcomes is what a teacher does daily in a classroom. And of course, the Commonwealth has no line of sight into a classroom. So whatever they do, whatever policy, whatever they put in place, they can't actually see that it's made a difference. So the role of the state in that is absolutely vital. Um, having said that, you know, there is a place in this, um, and this is a contested area, and I may get booze from the audience, but you know, the place of NAPLAN as a national uh, measure for us to be able to say as a system things are going well or they're not going well or what are the policy levers we need to pull, is, is a great piece of work. Whether you like NAPLEN or not, it, it, the concept of it is vital and that piece um, the Commonwealth has provided. When it, The discourse around it, though, has been destructive at a local level because what you can't see uh, is the individual student or school stories of improvement in that big data. And that's a real issue for us and a real danger. Um, the further we remove the data from the teacher, then the less uh, the, that data impacts on what the teacher does in terms of the teaching-learning process. So I say that the Commonwealth has the role in the big data for systems, but you know, in terms of that line of sight to what a teacher actually does, that's where the risk, where we start using that big data to say, well, teachers need to do this that, and that, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so I see that as a real risk. And I'd also uh, um, comment, David, on what you said. You're absolutely right about that Commonwealth agreement piece. You know, I'm very nervous about prescriptive reforms that don't align with uh, or build on the work that is successful in a jurisdiction that come from the Commonwealth. You know, and I suppose because those um, reforms or prescriptive reforms, that they're measured by um, money or time. So they're not measured by success of the outcomes. They're measured by this is how long this agreement will go for, four years. This is how long, uh, this is the amount of money you will get and when that runs out, we're done. It's got nothing to do with measuring what would successful movement in that space look like. What would a successful reform look like? And that's a, that's a basic flaw for that uh, interface between the, the Commonwealth and the state because it's not actually about the outcomes. It's measured by time or by money.
0: Mm. David, is, is, is there anything you want to? Yeah,
4: um, the other thing that uh, I think um, will need to be sort of carefully monitored, I guess, in the in the process is um, time and money is one thing, but there is also uh, past experience with, particularly the health agreements, and Matt, you'd probably, you know, you may be familiar with this as well from your work. Um, that uh, setting up KPIs, um, where um, Commonwealth money is at risk if you don't hit them, uh, can seem like a good idea at the time.
2: Well, no, I wasn't
4: asking for that. No, no. <laughs> but uh, no, what I'm saying it can seem to the Commonwealth like a good idea at yes, the time. Yes, I, I would not um, describe the <laughs> outcomes
2: personally.
4: Um, but the Commonwealth, and there's a there's a great book that was co-authored by uh, John Warner and, and Michael Keating. Um, around this, uh, called uh, Institutions on the Edge, I think. And they said that the Commonwealth bureaucracy habitually underestimates the capacity of state governments to seem like they're doing what the Commonwealth wants them to do. Um, And so state governments are very adept at um, knowing how the data works and presenting the data in certain ways. Um, uh, So I just think it's a a, a thing, a, a flawed mentality for for the Commonwealth to bring, and I hope they don't do it this time, I hope they've learnt lessons in the past from from past agreements, where if you say, unless you meet this KPI, um, you you know, X percent of your funding is going to be at risk. It's no way to engender a partnership. So I just sort of... We just need to watch that one as well. Mm.
0: Thank you. All right, let's move to current events of the week. Gonski 2.0 report. Julie, before we... Sort of get into a discussion about the recommendations. Could you give us a brief summary of the key themes that
1: came out this week? Um, so the report had 23 recommendations um, across five key areas, and yes. for those who have read it, they'll know that it was a very comprehensive, um, very comprehensive, 110 pages worth. Um, but the five areas that it covers are um, the early years transitions, um, so the role of parents and carers in particular um, for children's learning before school. Um, student growth and uh, more of a focus on general capabilities such as critical thinking and creativity in the curriculum. Um, the third one is around the teaching profession and improving professional learning and whatnot. The third is around um, school leaders and, and training and a review of the eight SOL principal standards. Um, and the fifth was around innovation and continuous improvement, Um, and there was a specific recommendation there um, for a new national research body um, that would be independent of government, um, which is also a commitment that the Labor government has um, supported, so there's now bipartisan support for that. Um, So it's very broad, Um, it articulates a lot of reforms that are in the area of the state government, it articulates a small number of things that the Commonwealth will support and do. Um, it has been criticised by some for being a very high-level document, and I think, you know, I'd best describe this as a, a really good vision statement. Um, personally, I think that it was right that the document didn't get into the how of of some of these areas because that is actually the state government's role. And I think the more that the Commonwealth tries to articulate and and get involved in that, it's just going down the wrong path. Um, I think it's not... I mean, this document just has been written as a statement. I think in terms of how it's used and what happens next in terms of implementation um, will be decided shortly in the negotiations. Um, There is still a possibility that the federal government could use this document and tie some of the recommendations to state governments, or they might not, Um, so it could go either way. Um,
0: Matt, given your work in advocating for the National Research Evidence Body, what look to be some promising reforms, in your opinion? Are there any opportunities that have been missed? Uh,
3: So I think I wanted to sort of start this discussion, perhaps tying into the last one, about the Mm. role of the Australian government, but it also applies to any government. Where you've got a desire to see change, there's really three levers that you're going to pull on. You've either got funding, how much money am I going to give? You've got accountability, how are you going to show me that you're doing what you need? Or you've got capability, how am I going to improve the work of the people making the change? And so I think for all of us waiting to see, one, what the report would say, and then we're still waiting to, I guess, really understand how does the Australian government perceive the way it's going to work... Um, At least the report now, I think, leans much more strongly on the idea of developing capability in the sector for the benefit of the the agenda. Um, And that's to be welcomed, I think. The risks of the accountability lever being pulled so hard that it breaks is is some of the discussion that was happening before. So if we're in a frame of capability, um, then then there are a number of bits of the the report that, that work towards how we're going to create those sorts of improvements. You're right, our very strong interest has been on that last category that Julie was talking about being the system of a continuous improvement model um, and on the specific recommendation about creating a, an independent evidence institute, we're, we're pleased and we welcome the uh, the way in which the report itself has, has, has framed that discussion um, and there's an excellent supplementary paper that the the Australian government have just released as well on the particular topic that the University of Melbourne put together for them, and I'd recommend for people that are geeky enough to really want to get into it to go and have a look at it, but it, it, it does a good job at talking about the features that you would want to have in an evidence body or an institute that doesn't replicate what is already happening. Um, either in systems, the non-Govs, as well as in the government systems, or that are happening in research institutes already, or that are happening with the current national bodies, with a car or an AITSL. and And we're really interested in that part of the role that um, this independent, and independent not just of government, but independent of everybody, um, can play to act as an honest broker with an aim with an eye on that improvement and outcomes agenda and with no fixed position on how to get there, but rather by following the evidence and the learning that occurs throughout the system. And so we think that the construction of that recommendation looks good. We also think that's one that um, should be supported from both sides of politics um, because it allows everybody to project out past a change of government and to sign up to a kind of ongoing commitment to learning. And if it's constructed right in the discussion that now happens between the states and territories, it can mobilise the knowledge of the great work that is occurring and share that to other places. It can also support innovation, the hubs of innovation that happen in schools that even state systems miss because they themselves are looking in a certain way. And it can let it move horizontally as well as vertically through the system. But there are some really important design features to make to help it do that and not have it become another piece of bureaucracy against which people either game or avoid. And so key principles around independence, around transparency, um, and around an agenda that lets it look at um, innovation as well as bringing the knowledge that exists from high quality trials or from evidence and learning from overseas, but then made locally relevant Um, And this speaks back to the Federalist point. You need to be strong in understanding our federation. There are reasons that there are differences at a state and territory level that absolutely have to be kind of baked into the work. So we think that's really good. Um, I think in terms of the question of missed opportunity, um, so what it hasn't done, and this is some of the criticisms, is sort of um, gone to the heart of the terms of reference about the how should this occur to see the change that we're looking for. Julia, I take your point that maybe it was... Good that it didn't do that, but there's obviously been a decision not to do that. But so what it doesn't describe well is how does the age-old relationship and conversation between the different sectors and the state and the uh, the Commonwealth work their way through to give effect to these principles. So that really is now put into the hands, I guess, of the Ministers' Vacation Council and the uh, the secretaries from around the country. But the, it might have been helpful to give a little bit more guidance as to the roles and responsibilities against these domains. I think could have been more helpful. Um, and I guess the last bit in that work is, given that it's now gonna sit in that model for them, um, this becomes a question of, it'll be viewed through the lens of the funding agreement and, and I think you've got the sort of challenges and opportunities that we just described earlier. So uh, we're very keen to make sure that where possible in this next stage of the process, all the participants can find parts of common cause and agreement that um, do make sense to operate nationally and just get moving on it um, rather than um, have it all looked at through the prism of the, uh, the trading game that will occur through the funding conversation.
0: Thanks, Matt. Um, David, before we open the floor to audience <coughs> questions, um, I'd like to ask you to finish off this part of our evening with your thoughts on the recommendations. Mm. Anything contentious that's worthy of note? Julie mentioned, you know, the high-level nature. Matt's mentioned the, the lack of the how. Do they go into enough detail, in your opinion?
4: Uh, look, I'm going to foot in both camps. I think uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm generally supportive of, of, of Julie's view that there is an advantage to the, the lack of specificity on one, on one hand because you can now talk about this document as this is something that the Commonwealth should be doing, leading a national conversation, um, setting sort of high-level aspirational directions, uh, and but not being too specific about how it's operationalised. So that's putting a positive spin <laughs> on the lack of specificity. But I can also see um, why so many commentators have been disappointed with particularly those who looked at the Commonwealth to exercise their fiscal leverage to make things happen and they wanted more specificity about the things that they really like. Um, uh, So, for example, there's been criticism, and I think it's not misplaced, but I'm not too concerned about it, around uh, notions of um, very vaguely worded, (laughs) recommendations. If I can just give one example, sort of so motherhood nobody could possibly object but you then ask, well what does that mean in practice? Mm. Um, so for example, ensure all students have the opportunity within schools to be partners in their own learning. Who could possibly object? Well, people have objected because the lack of specificity about what that means in practice means that there is wide scope for people to um, interpret that in, in ways that they say the Commonwealth are pushing this line or that line, when in fact the Commonwealth may not be doing that at all. Um, And so uh, that's sort of one sort of example. The other one is around the push for um, what is referred to as general capabilities. Um, Well, what, and and people, the list normally starts with the the, the four C's, you know, critical thinking, creativity, collaboration, communication. but unless it's actually spelled out by what that means in uh, in a disciplinary sense, um, it becomes very hard to, well, what exactly do you mean by critical thinking in history? What do you mean by critical thinking in science? And how do you measure them? Um, so all those questions are, are left unanswered, um, which allows room for the critics, if you like, to sort of... Um, uh, Sort of put the worst possible interpretation uh, on the document, um, so that 's a, a sort of a failing, I guess or, or the downside of a lack of specificity, um, but i 'm prepared to live with it because I think it does leave room for jurisdictions to, to and they 're the ones now that have to do the hard yards to to uh, put the flesh on the bone, so to speak. Mm.
0: Thank you everyone for that detailed analysis tonight. Um, I've seen from the registration list that we have quite a few people here tonight with a vested interest in, um, in education and schooling, which is so great. Uh, I'm sure you've all got thoughts and questions for our panel. Um, I will ask that when you're framing your questions tonight please do keep it short so we have a chance to hear from as many people as possible. Full warning, I will be brutal. I will tell you to wrap it up if I need to. (laughs) While you're gathering your thoughts on what questions you'd like to ask, I'll start us off with a question that was submitted by Renee Richards. I don't know if she's here tonight. Um, Oh, hi, Renee. So you asked a question for the panel. Um, You've asked, should schools dump the practice of so-called ability streaming? David, do you have thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> you uh, seem to. <laughs>
4: look, I think there's, uh, on balance, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, what we should be encouraging and skilling teachers up to do is, uh, uh, you know, the skills in uh, in differentiated teaching to mixed ability classes um, again this is an area where the lack of specificity in the report has attracted um, sort of worst case scenario uh, interpretations that uh, individualized learning means you know each teacher has to pre- you know prepare thirty individual lesson plans you know for each each of their students um, now it doesn't actually say that but mm because it's not spelled out that it's not saying that that allows people to go there. Um, uh, but uh, technology is perhaps going to open up new levels uh, and possibilities for um, greater fine-grained assessment of, of students' capabilities, which may, you know, again, using big data and learning analytics, may be able to uh, help teachers uh, develop more sort of fine-grained approaches, but in general um, the capability that we should be supporting teachers to develop is that ability to um, exercise you know, and, and practice differentiated teaching. Um, I think there's enough evidence around um, the pros and the cons of, of uh, streaming uh, of, of, of by academic ability to suggest that um, there are better ways of, of going about it.
3: Matt? Matt? Uh, so this is a shameless plug for Evidence for Learning's free website, um, but Evidence for Learning does have a toolkit where you can um, look at the summary of the research on that very topic, and so at evidenceforlearning.org.au, um, and have a look. <laughs> but the summary out from that, and, and but this, is, you, you really do have to start with the well, what, what do we know so far on that topic, in general from the studies that have occurred, and w- there is um, a good body of evidence that. Does talk about the risks that occur with streaming um, having a, a positive impact on higher achieving students, but a um, strongly negative impact on those that are poor achieving. And it also skews even worse for people from um, low socioeconomic backgrounds in terms of it. So there's an equity question about how does that model impact on certain learners? Um, and, and so I think you start in that place that says if there are some real downsides from the model, can you address those downsides in your local implementation of that? And again, I come back to it doesn't mean that if the evidence says that, that no one should do it anywhere, but that you proceed with caution. Um, or if you're not going to do that, um, how are you in another way in a classroom of mixed ability address the known... Um, you know, quite substantial, some say five, some say seven years in middle schooling, mm. of the, um, the range of abilities. So they're not simple answers, mm. but if you begin with what do we know so far, with a nuanced approach to that and how confident can we be in it, then you can make more thoughtful responses to the question.
2: Mm. Leanne, did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, yes, I think it's a problematic piece. I think that starting with the capability to differentiate is absolutely vital, because I don't know how you cut any group or ability stream any group that doesn't have a range of capability in it anyway. So teachers still need to be able to do that. Um, I think that there are place-based solutions for a range of reasons. What type of ability are we actually talking about? Um, So I I think that um, principals uh, are great at making local decisions uh, with their parent communities about the best way to uh, structure their schools and I would be supportive of that.
0: Great, Uh, we might open it up now to the floor. Got a few questions out there. Um, Just start down the front here. Gentleman in the blue shirt.
1: Yeah.
4: Just to follow up on that first question, don't selective schools, of which fortunately Queensland state system doesn't have very many yet, but as I understand it, New South Wales does, don't they just constitute ability streaming at an institutional level?
2: Uh, (laughs) So I I, I was a principal of a uh, selective school um, at the Queensland Academy for Health Sciences. So I would say that, yes, that is an institutional to a certain degree, but there is still a range of students with a range of abilities in a range of um, different areas within that cohort um so yes um to a certain degree you're right um, was the cohort interesting did they learn lots was it a great place to be yes um did they have challenges did they not succeed at things yes uh did they face the same challenges that all teenagers face yes so you know i i hear what you're saying and that's a debate that you know the evidence points to but um, there are reasons why those opportunities exist and there are, you know, parents make those selections for a reason. I mean, we could point to, if we really wanted to, the non-state sector where if you've got the money you can pay to go to it, is that not a selective piece? So, you know, I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a debate that's, um, you know, it's yeah. contested and ongoing.
4: I think um, the, the last comment that Leanne made in, in her previous response is, is relevant here, and that is, what does the local sort of school want to do? Um, you'd be aware that in New South Wales there is a, an ongoing debate around the place of selective schools. Um, interestingly, not so much about the, um, the selective sports and performing arts schools, um, where there is seen to be a kind of a, if you like, a Silicon Valley effect of, uh, of hot housing people with particular skills mm. and, and, and the benefits that come um, from having them sort of study together. Um, so, this is I say you know, can't be too overly categorical about this, but uh, uh, you know, pointing to the evidence that you know, Matt has suggested um, and uh, balancing that with, I guess, uh, a degree of local autonomy and decision making is, is, is critical.
1: Mm. Yep, at the back there.
3: I'll make it quick since I uh, took five minutes to walk up the stairs. Um,
1: just uh, moving away from ability streaming, question around uh, just wanting some more
3: elaboration on the uh, understanding of the national research body and your recommendations, particularly, David, um, around that body. <clears throat> My and um, afternoon, Matt. Um, I, I'm obviously very cognisant of the work that SVA has done and, uh, and also our state body through Leanne. Um, there's a lot of bodies out there at the moment that are currently you know, dabbling in research. There's international, there's the Education Endowment Foundation and also science research in, in the US. Um, what's your understanding or what's your recommendations going forward for a national research body? Is this something that might sit with a SVA or is it something that's going to be um, you know, housed locally within states or a, a federally managed um, I- ideal?
4: Yeah, um, good question. Um, I think there's a, a couple of interesting analogies in the health sector. So Queensland has a fantastic um, health and research institute, but there's also a national um, uh, health uh, and research institute. Uh, the key, I think, is going to be not to duplicate effort and how do you, how do you construct a, an institutional architecture that leverages existing uh, effort? Um, there are a number of bodies in New South Wales within the department. We have the Centre for uh, Educational Statistics and Evaluation, which produces some great, uh, some great work. Um, at one stage, I thought, when I uh, originally saw uh, the Labor Party's uh, you know, suggestion a few months ago, um, I thought what might be better um, uh, than what is what they were suggesting and, and what's come through in the report, but i uh, since thought about it again, was something akin to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, uh, where you have the Australian Institute of Education, which would not just look at schooling, but would um, bring together data and research from early childhood education, schooling, vocational education, and higher education, uh, and produce, like the AIHW does, sort of biannual research reports and things like that. Um, so I think you know theoretically, I think that's appealing, um, but from a point of view of sort of institutional architecture, funding, etc, it's probably um, probably overkill um, and I would see a, a better way of going is to be working with the states to come up with a, a sort of a, um, a distributed a distributed model um, that uh, uses and leverages existing research capability both uh, uh, in the state sector in the, and in the uh, not-for-profit sector.
3: Just, yeah, make one comment about our submission to the review. I was talking about some of those principles, Talk about um, independence and transparency. Two of the others that are relevant for your question was, one, that it shouldn't duplicate what exists already in bodies like CC. Um, it should be differential, so states themselves can say, what are our priorities that could be commonly invested in? Um, and that the money should come as federal funding um, that can then be co-invested, co-invested with states where there's a question that's of interest to them, um, or from multiple states where a common question, transitioning students or um, highly mobile communities might be one that interacts a number of systems and they might be interested in co-investing in research on that question that they could then use themselves. So one was this idea of don't duplicate and leverage what's already there, but also that this body quite critically should be a commissioner of research and a broker for it but not conducted it itself so that it should be spending towards those existing institutions that already do that work and increasing the capability in that work. But the importance of making sure that it's happening with at least a, a common national agenda is that you can get um, consistency of the output, and then delivery of the information in forms that are useful for educators. And if you have pockets of funding, that's what happens at the moment in education, two different institutions for things that they just care about, not just they care about them because that's their <coughs> area of expertise, it becomes very difficult for anyone to synthesise those things together and turn that back into the trade offs that actually systems and schools have to make because they're not just interested in does something make a difference? That's helpful to know, but they also want to understand compared to doing what else. And how much does it cost to do that? Because they're the pieces of information that matter to make a decision about what you're going to do in your local budget.
1: Mm. And I think, just to add to that, I think um, there are complications to doing it nationally, but I think one, one real strength of this is the signal that it sends that you know, school education is typically an area where there hasn't been as much rigour in the research and evidence compared to other sectors like health or whatnot. And you know this is... This is actually a bit of a change. And I think, you know, that there, there has been a lot of change in the evidence in the last sort of 10, 15 years um, through randomized control trials and whatnot. But in terms of raising the bar for the standard and quality of evidence and having that being a nation, a nationwide discussion um, is a positive. Hmm.
0: Anyone else? Yep, just in the middle there.
3: Necessarily we've uh, talked a lot about data tonight and things like NAPLAN have been mentioned and data analytics. Um, we could also add PISA to that as well. So those, that kind of data uh, privileges certain kinds of thinking about intelligence and learning and it doesn't privilege other kinds of uh, intelligence or learning so that it seems mathematics and science, for example, are those benchmarks that Australia seems to be slipping against nationally and yet uh, people like Sir Ken Robinson would argue that We shouldn't be looking just at that kind of data. So, I guess my question is, what data should we be looking at?
0: Do you want to take that?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to answer that. We should be looking at what uh, the data around what goes on in a classroom. We should be looking at the learning of a child (coughs) in a curriculum area, um, what's happened there. The the person that understands that is a teacher. What does the child need to move from here to here in their learning? (coughs) What's the teaching practice I'm going to put in place to make that happen? So it's that local data that actually makes the difference for students. Um, you know, As I said, the big data gives us the levers and policy sense, but if we're actually talking about the outcomes for a student, then it is about what that child needs to know, what they need to understand, what skill they need to develop to move from one place to the next in their learning. If we're going to talk about 12 months of learning, as Hattie talks about, then we need to be able to use the data that's the local data based on the curriculum that's broad, that um, values a whole range of things that those narrow pieces like PISA, et cetera, don't measure. But I'm not critical of them in the sense of what they do for us as a system or as a nation to look at, you know, to to move those policy levers. Do
0: you want to add anything?
3: Yeah, so there's, I mean, it's interesting, PISA in their last round actually included um, questions around collaboration. So they're trying to get to measures on some of these, what we're calling general capabilities in Australia, I believe they sort of talk about them as competencies. So uh, the question is r- really about what can you measure? And there's a kind of interesting um, joke about you know um, late night in a car park, and uh, you walk along and see a guy standing there underneath the streetlight. And chap comes up to him and says, "Well, what are you doing?" He says, "I'm looking for my car keys." And he said, "Oh, they're here, are they?" And he said, "No, no, I left them back over near the car." And he says, "Well, why are you looking here?" And he goes, "Well, the light's better here." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so we've got a challenge of you can't manage what you can't measure and whilst we can agree a general good it's a bit to David's point before if we don't have ways of assessing or describing progressions through these other measures like and let's have a go at how do you get progressions in creativity uh, or in empathy um, it becomes very difficult like so we can all say that they're important skills but to actually make them teachable you need to describe them have progressions for them and have ways of measuring them And I think that's important work to do, and some of the work that our partners do internationally are starting to look at those non-cognitive domains and the impact back on learning, and again, taking the big knowledge that can then help local decision-making. So I think it's a really rich area for research and inquiry, but um, we have to get more specific and defined about it and then say, well, what difference does it make? Um, And there's a lot of work to be done before it can be useful back into the hands of teachers.
4: Mm. And just to go back to a point that Leanne made earlier, it's not that you stop looking at that the, the Naplan and Pisa data. I mean, Parsi Salberg, you know, who's now at the Gonski Institute in at New South Wales University with our former minister. Um, he 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 acknowledges a lot of the criticisms about Pisa. He says, but it's all we've got in terms of you know credible international comparisons, which you know can you know provide insights. Um, I read an article of his recently where he was making these arguments, and I conducted a thought experiment, substituted Naplan for Pisa, I and mean, it almost read. Incredibly, you know, all these problems with it, but it's all we've got in terms of um, national comparisons across systems. Um, you know, uh, without NAPLAN, you don't have a gap to close in terms a measurable gap to close in terms of Aboriginal educational outcomes. So it's not that you stop looking at that, but what else do you look at as well? And uh, one of the things that I think we really need to work hard on is measures of schooling quality. Um, the problem is that with one of the problems with NAPLAN is that it has become a proxy for the quality of schooling, mm-hmm. um, whereas schooling is much more complex and multifaceted than that. So, what else do you look at? And I think parents would be particularly interested. Um, I, I was when I was a, a parent of school-age kids. How? Uh, what's the? What's a good measure? A credible measure of student well-being, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, let's look at. Bullying rates, you know, things like that. What's actually going on in the school environment? So there are other sort of aspects of the school environment that we should be thinking about. How do we collect data on that and and measure it? Mm.
0: Anyone else? It'd be great to hear from some of the women in the audience if anybody's got a question. (laughs) Yep, great, down the front here.
2: Thank you. Ray and I are. Is this on? Yeah. Uh, Ray and I are the parents of three um, teachers, primary school teachers. They are experienced teachers. They've been, in, they're in their forties and fifties. Um, their main complaint seems to be that they are so time poor that they don't feel as though they're able to give to their students the amount of time that they would like to. Do you see, uh, and you don't want to lose these experienced teachers, they're hard working. so do you see a way of bridging this gap so that they don't feel as though they're not being effective by not overloading them with administrative sorts of work? Thank you. I, I'll make a comment on that. Um, one of my first uh, comments about holding the course is absolutely vital, um, you know. Changing the curriculum again is not something we want to do. you know the the pieces the expectations of communities about what teachers will solve in classrooms beyond just the curriculum is extensive. You know if you read the papers it's the it's the bullying, it's the swimming, it's the um, whatever else you want to name becomes the immediate go to place is is the school. You know, our core business is about learning outcomes. Those pieces need to be aligned to the curriculum so that teachers have some space to say, this is my core work, these capabilities live within the curriculum, this is the work we need to do. So that political will, you know, and the, uh, of holding the line about that and not changing the course, I think is part of the uh, solution to easing that. But having said, you know, as an ex-teacher and principal, you know, how long is a piece of string? You never feel. I, I think we forget um, that the moral imperative of people who go into teaching, you know, they do it because they love it, they they are dedicated, they care, and so they always feel that they're never doing enough. And, the, and that is a challenge for us as individuals in classrooms to manage. Uh, and I think, you know, we don't recognise that and that dedication that is there. Um, and sometimes it is a you know, easing the load, but as well easing the load personally on how much you give in that, that space.
0: Thanks. Is there a question at the back? Yeah. Thank you. Thank
2: you. You've spoken about the lack of specificity in the report and the need for 12 months of learning for each student. How would you see that being implemented for high ability students?
4: Well, I think that's work that needs to be done. Um, What does 12 months learning look like for high-ability students, uh, low ability students, students of, you know, um, ability in between? Um, What does it mean for, you know, students with, um, you know, learning difficulties? This is one of the the issues. I think um, the work that needs to be done by state jurisdictions goes exactly to that point. Um, I'm not in a position at this stage to sort of sort of say what the outcome of that sort of further work would be, um, but it's a task that all state jurisdictions need to undertake to, say, define what this actually looks like um, and identify, um, in particular, the pedagogical approaches that might be necessary to, to, to deliver on that. And they might be different in different in different subjects as well. What subject are we looking at? Every subject. This is the other problem with the report. Is this, is they are talking about focusing on literacy and numeracy, but then there's you can read the report and say it seems to be that they want progressions in every KLA um, and in every general capability. So these are aspects of the report that sort of make it vulnerable to the to the criticisms that I referred to before. Um, so, look, I'm not in a position to sort of answer specifically your 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 question. This is work that has to be done. yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: It's a great question Mm. Uh, because it's actually, my team's over here, it's actually one we're working on at the moment because it is an absolute challenge. If a student's on an A, on an A, on an A, what does that look like? You know, For a student that's on a D, moving 12 months on, they move to a C, we know they've actually gained more than 12 months uh, of learning. We can measure that. But for those high achieving students, how do you actually measure that? And where people go to is, oh, it's deeper learning. Mm, What does that really mean? So we actually are running a statewide inquiry circle, so you know there's our adaptive education system at the moment with a range of schools, I think it's up to 70 schools, where we are exploring and developing an answer to that question because it is one of the biggest challenges. As I said before, I was a principal of a selective entry school and uh, what I didn't say at that point was the greatest thing I learnt at that was my absolute principal guilt. My absolute principal guilt about—I had had students of that ability and uh, capability that were beyond anything I'd imagined. But those kids had lived in every school I had ever been in, and had we asked enough of them? No, we hadn't asked enough. Uh, I, and I live with that guilt constantly. So that question about how do we do 12 months' growth for our brighter students is absolutely one that's dear to my heart. So love to have a conversation with you about it further afterwards.
3: Just might make one wider point about the kind of benefit of evidence and learnings from elsewhere to inform the people that are going to have to make that real. And people, kind of, we often talk about the what works agenda, like, oh, this, you know, the, we're out there to sure. tell you what works. Well, the, it's actually not what works, it's what worked, so somewhere else at another time. Um, but if there's lots of it, that gives you a sense it might be a good bet. But the other bit is it should be what works for whom and under what conditions, and so The obligation on the rest of us, the researchers, the people that are trying to sort of marshal this knowledge, ought to be getting much better at saying what sorts of activities make a difference for what kinds of learners and and the stages that they're at. So that if we can say something with greater confidence about people based on um, family circumstances or Uh, experience with trauma or um, operating at a high academic ability what could you do to extend then that knowledge can be very helpful for people that are then diving into the deeper question about well what are we going to do about it as a system or what are we going to do about it as a school and we're getting better at at, um, being able to differentiate in the research too.
2: And, And Matt knows that would be my criticism of research is that as a practitioner, I can read all the research in the world, but it doesn't tell me what I'm going to do tomorrow in a classroom with a teacher to develop what piece of capability. What's my local context that I need to read into that? And I suppose that's the piece of work Matt knows about that we've been doing is how do you translate that into the right question to ask as a principal to ensure you understand what's the practical, on-the-ground piece you're going to do that is going to move the capability of staff to move... Uh, the outcomes for those students. Mm.
1: Yes, just
4: here. About 15 months ago, um, Ken Boston came up and addressed a group uh, on the issue of Gonski 1 uh, and whether it was a mirage. Um, do you think there is a likelihood that Gonski 2 might, in retrospect, be seen to be a mirage which recommends all sorts of good things but nobody actually gets around to doing anything? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: well I won't answer that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look Julie, do I you want to uh, take that? I think a lot of the recommendations there are some there are some genuinely new things in, in this piece of work, but a lot of the recommendations are actually I'd, you know, things that state governments have been trying to do for many years. Um, so articulating them again is not necessarily just gonna, you know, help move that process along. And I don't I don't think necessarily that was the intention of this document, um, but I would hope that this is a really this this product is a really good synthesis, if yet not an, of no, another one of the of the key things that we need we need to achieve as a system and what policymakers should be focusing their efforts on. Um, so I would hope that you know this this may stop um, sort of you know, focusing on you know, smaller issues or sort of more faddish ideas to really just lay it all out in one document. What are all the things that we need to do? And then let's have a conversation around, you know, what bits the state government is doing, what bits the Commonwealth is doing, and we're all on the same page about generally what needs to happen. That's what I see the purpose of this particular um, review being. Will it solve all problems and will it suddenly make, solutions appear at the state level, I doubt it, but I, I think it at least puts them on the agenda in a really public way, which hopefully will spark a lot of discussion and debate you know, at the state government level as well, um, about the extent to which it's already happening or not happening. And, and those conversations are very productive, I think. So um, I'm not sure if I've entirely answered the question, but um, it's a difficult one. In terms of it not becoming a mirage, would tying the recommendations
0: to the funding agreements... That's a very good question. You I know, do not think that would make
1: stop it... That. I, yeah. problem
4: is The problem is the the recommendations are not specific enough to... Mm. to it's mm. like mm. when you say tying the recommendations to the funding rooms, it would be like trying to nail jelly to a wall. Mm. That's, mm. that's what... I, I just think the the states need to do the work to operationalise this. Mm. Yep. Right. And to the extent that that's part of the bilateral discussions between the Commonwealth states... That will be the proof in the pudding. Use mm.
3: another culinary
4: metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Matt, did you have something want to add there?
3: So we have been waiting for the report because the Australian government or current um, minister had said, I wanted to have this report occur to tell me what mm. the Commonwealth should do. And so we didn't know what the view of the Commonwealth was. That's now been expressed in the report and has been by both the Prime Minister and the Minister saying, we accept the recommendation. So to the extent that people were jumping at shadows before about what was the Commonwealth keen on, we now have a statement from them that this is what they're keen on achieving at the level that we now understand it to be. So I think that's positive. And if you take the glasses half full view about it, it also leaves the appropriate room for... a. Um, the, a good discussion with the states and territories and the non-government school sector as well to understand how are we going to go and do that. I think that now comes down to kind of you know, the goodwill and the efforts of people to say the ways in which they're going to implement that in their in their different jurisdictions and in their different contexts. Um, for those of us that kind of don't have a seat at the, at the table uh, for the non-profit sector and social organisations and others, I think we're just hoping to... Um, land on some things that we say are right for the Commonwealth to do and we think that's strongly about a national independent body that can bring other perspectives to the question um, and and also strongly support the discussion about enhancing the professional reputation and support around teaching and school leadership because all of us I think can agree how critical that is and then we start saying well how do we support and help that as well as we can.
0: We might have time to squeeze in one more very quick question, if anybody has one. Yep, just... Uh, just building on a comment you just made um no one tonight has used the phrase crisis in education which is comforting um but it is a phrase that i've heard used in the media all week after the gonski 2.0 has been released so this seems to be a continual problem um and leanne referenced tonight the the prominent deficit discourse in education and the way we speak about quality teaching or quality teachers so, my question is, quickly, <laughs> how do uh, we change the reputation of schools, teachers and the profession na- nationally to engage in a posit- more positive view of education? Mm. Anyone
1: want to take that
4: one? David? Uh, yeah, I think um, it's a good point. Um, Mr. Gonski himself, I think, um, mm. was trying to correct the record, I guess, because... Uh, on Monday, you know, the headline was uh, Generation of Students Failed you know, uh, and, and using the PISA data um, uh, as evidence of that. Uh, but, um, you know, we've looked at, you know, uh, there's been a century of reform efforts in New South Wales. Um, you can draw a lot of lessons from those. Successful reforms are ones that you don't start by dissing your past. Uh, a, 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 an unhelpful attempt to create a burning platform where there isn't one um, is not helpful. Um, so I think the kinds of comments that Leanne opened with today I think are going to be uh, important. I think the ministers will make this point to, uh, on Friday. Um, uh, again, it's, it's part of the dynamic of Commonwealth state relations um, that... Um, when the Commonwealth is unhappy with progress by the states on on matters that it feels some pressure to demonstrate progress on, it will sort of point the finger at the states in this way. Um, uh, And that is, I don't think, conducive to productive and collaborative efforts moving forward. Uh, But I'll stop there, because I was just Mm. sort of talking from the federal-state relations issue, but others might have a sort of comment around the the reputational question.
3: Yeah, so I I think I've got a little bit of a different, maybe a bit of a contrary view, in that um, the the dangerous dialogue is one that talks about you're calling it a crisis, but we should focus on the strengths and build, and I don't disagree with the importance of strengths-based activity. But to not acknowledge the public discourse that exists, even if it's not whipped up into a frenzy, that mm. does exist in the worries for families and communities about is this the right education for my mm. kids going forward? Um, are we focusing on the mm. right things? Um, are the skills and the knowledge that we're developing going to be um, right? Are uh, uh, perhaps eternal concerns as a parent? And I do as so well as I carry that now. Um, and it's important for the sector, not just the teaching and school leadership professions or the system, but for everybody to have a clear-eyed discussion about the data that we do have that tells us about where we're at in our performance. As, um, as much as that could be improved working with what we have at the moment, there are some challenges that um, I think d- denying that they exist or accusing others mm. of making that into being hysterical actually creates a greater problem. So I think that the, the kind of clear-eyed discussion of the challenges that do exist but then building from what we can do to improve um, and then engaging in a really meaningful conversation with everybody else that are total stakeholders <coughs> in this but aren't doing the su- supremely important work in classrooms is, is a really important discussion.
4: I might... uh, one, very quickly, one sure. way of, instead of asking what's the problem we're trying to solve, you, you frame it as what's the opportunity we need to seize. Mm. It's just a different way of framing it. Mm.
0: Very good. Time has definitely run away from us unless anyone else has anything burning to add there. I will uh, draw the event to a close. I'm sure we could keep talking about it all night. I would like to once again thank the State Library for hosting us this evening. Thank you Louise. Um, If you aren't already you might like to consider joining their mailing list to stay informed about the other events and exhibitions they have upcoming. Thanks also to you, the audience, for your attention and thoughts this evening. Uh, If you didn't get a chance to ask your question some of the panel may be around for a few moments following the event if you'd like to come up and have a chat with anybody. Um, and finally, thanks once again to our incredible panel for your insights and analysis tonight. This is a complex but important topic, and it's vital that these kind of conversations are taking place and hopefully are informing our governments to use evidence and expertise in all their policy decisions. So um, I'd invite you all to join me in thanking our panel for their time tonight. Thank you, Thank you and good evening.